Good evening, everybody. Okay, so we're still in samsara and still studying about samsara. Yeah. So really uh, take these teachings and really, you know, look at them uh, in terms of your own life. Yeah. And especially uh, tonight we'll go over uh, craving and, and probably clinging. And those two are really very, very relevant. Yeah, if you find nothing to think about when we talk about those two, then, um, I don't know, then go to Mars <laughs> you know? and spread the Dharma in Mars, okay? Because, you know, these things are, they're, they're really, um, they're quite personal about us. And they may talk about things that we're not aware of in ourselves. But if we spend some time observing our own mind, we'll see those things. And we can also look at uh, other people around us and how they think and how they act. And that also gives us an idea of uh, when we go through the different types of craving and the different kinds of clinging. Okay? So let's begin. Yeah, with the visualization of the merit field. So remember that all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are your friends. So you can be very open and honest. You don't have to put on a show for them. And then ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings who are also rooting for us. Because as we practice well, then they will benefit. And they really need the help that we can offer. So let's recall our motivation. And seeing all sentient beings as equal and also equal to ourselves, wanting happiness and suffering, uh, not suffering. Now really think of specific people and look at their lives and how they're trying to go about getting happiness and avoiding suffering. Thinking of your family or your friends, your old colleagues.
and how hard they're, they're trying to be happy. And yet the nature of samsara is such that we can never get everything we want. And even if we get it, we can't hang on to it. And meanwhile, all the problems we don't want, they come along free. We don't have to go looking for them. So it's fine to feel sad when you think about this. But remember, don't look at it as you usually do when you feel sad, which is, I want to change it and there's nothing I can do. Because now we're we're seeing the difficulties others have, and we know there is something we can do. And we also know there's something that they can do. That all these things happen simply because the causes for them have been created. And if we stop creating the causes, that whole situation will cease to exist. So when we look at difficulties this way, then we see that there's always hope and there's always a reason to be optimistic. And that optimistic mind invigorates our practice. As we know, if we can eliminate the causes, the resulting dukkha automatically stops. And since we are learning how to eliminate those causes, and it's possible to eliminate them, because they are not in the nature of the mind, then there's always a reason to be optimistic. So with an optimistic, enthusiastic mind, then let's listen to the teachings so we can put them into practice. So 
there's always reason to be optimistic. But if we expect everything to be done quickly, then we're not being very realistic. Okay. So optimistic and realistic together. Okay. Not in our fantasy land. I don't know about you, but when I was young, younger, like most young people, you know, we want to change the world and it seems like it shouldn't be that difficult to do. And that all we do is just go ahead and do it. And, you know, the whole thing will, will change because you look at it, you know, it really shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. And then, uh, you try for a while. And, uh, you know, things are not happening as quickly as you want. And if you're, if you like quick results, yeah, if you like having a plan and accomplishing it, and I've done that and checked it off, then it's going to be hard for you. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, meeting the right path is at least 50% of, of the thing, yeah. Because how often do people not meet the right path? And then you're really stuck, yeah, really stuck. Okay, so having re- met the right path, Let's now look at how we shoot ourselves in the foot (laughs) by going in the opposite direction and craving all sorts of worldly stupidagios that, uh, you know, just create problems for ourselves and and for others. Yeah. Okay. So we're on page 179. Okay, so craving. So craving is a mental factor that, by depending on the link of feeling, the previous link, does not wish to separate from its object. Okay, do you ever crave things? Yeah. I don't want to separate from what I have. Because what I have is making me happy. And I don't want to separate from the happy feeling either. I want everything to be predictable and pleasant and uplifting and everything I want it to be without uh, my having to try and do anything. That's an important element. It should just come naturally, right? Okay, so eighth link craving occurs specifically. So we're talking about a specific meaning of craving here, the eighth link of craving. It occurs specifically while we are actively dying and is a form of attachment that arises strongly while the body weakens and the coarse consciousnesses still function. Okay. 
So this craving does not wish to separate from our possessions, our dear ones, our body, and the ego identity we have constructed during this life. Okay, so the craving that we're talking about here, yeah, it's you're actively dying. Now, I don't know how you find the demarcation point of when acting actively dying starts and when before you were unactively dying, which means you were just living because we're all in the process of approaching death, aren't we? And at some point, we hit actively dying. Okay. So is there a definition in the text for actively dying? Um, Mostly they list um, uh, some uh, physical signs that uh, that goes on uh, with the body. So the breathing changes, uh, the temperature drops, um, there's more, uh, usually more um, wet and saliva stuff at first. Uh, the feet are cold. Um, but you know, it's so it's so different because it depends on what you're dying from. So, but yeah. those are kind of the gross ones that you know you kind of look for, I guess. Yeah. And you may get one and not another, and they may come in different orders, and they may happen, and then they go away for a while, and then they come back. Yeah. So, okay. So, that kind of thing is happening. And so, while that is going on, you know, the mind is realizing, okay, I'm going to be saying goodbye to this world. Yeah. And we don't want to say goodbye to this world because we spent our whole life creating it and being attached to it and trying to make it the way we want it to be. And we have an identity in it and we don't want to separate from all of that. Yeah, because who are we going to be if we don't have our usual possessions if we don't have this body, if we aren't surrounded by friends and relatives telling us who we are, then who are we going to be? Yeah. And this is terrifying. Yeah. This is really terrifying. Yeah. So there's incredible craving. I, you know, I want, I need to hold on to this. Yeah. And meanwhile, the body's weakening, and as the body weakens, the physic the, it can't uh, sustain consciousness anymore. So the senses start to absorb, and the movement of the body becomes weaker. And then, of course, you know, as your senses absorb, you're losing touch with the outer world. Your body's becoming weaker. You get more frightened. Yeah, because what in the world is happening to me? And I don't know what it is, and I can't control it. Okay. But the and the course consciousness is still functioning. So these kinds of thoughts and feelings can arise in the mind at that time. Yeah. So it doesn't wish to separate from our possessions. 
Yeah, you're dying, and then all of a sudden you think, my stamp collection. You know, the stamps, my stamp collection that I've had since I was a little kid, and it's been in the cupboard for 45 years, and what's going to happen to it when I die? Because this stamp collecting was so meaningful to me when I was little. And I, I don't want to separate from my stamp collection. And I don't want my, my family to throw it out. Because yeah, it's really valuable. Now, it sounds ridiculous. But... Does your mind never sound ridiculous even when you're alive and thinking clearly? Yeah? No, we can think of anything and get attached to it. Anything. Okay? So you're dying and it's like, oh, you know, my, my tissue box, the pretty one. Yeah, I I want, you know, I don't want to separate from my tissue box because I'll need to blow my nose and, you know, and and I want my my pretty tissue box because I don't want to really look all covered in snot when I'm dying, you know, that means what kind of reputation will I have then, okay? So we get attacked, I mean, really? Or you get attached to your car, or you get attached to your bank account. You know, your bank account, the one that has one uh, integral number and then followed by a bunch of zeros, but the number of the zeros is the important part, not what the first number is, it's the number of zeros. And you're very, you know, what's going to happen to my bank account? Yeah, did I make a will? Yeah, I did. Who did I leave it to? Oh, no. (laughs) I left it to so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so has been so nasty and mean to me. Yeah, I don't want them to have it. I want to change how it's divvied up. Actually, I want to take it with me. Yeah. And so if you live in Singapore, then you want to make sure that you tell your relatives, don't burn the real money, but burn the money from the bank of hell, because that will get to me in my next life. And I don't want to arrive in my next life broke. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And throw in a Mercedes and a, a computer while you're burning the paper stuff. Okay. But we don't want to separate from our stuff. When I lived in Dharamsala, there was one lady, a family, that lived not a few doors down. And she was telling me, because her father had uh, left Tibet in 59, and she must have been a child at the time. Um, Anyway, when he crossed over into India... He had taken, uh, the family had some gold in Tibet. You know, they didn't have banks in Tibet. 
So, you know, you kept your gold wherever. Anyway, he had kept his gold. He came into India with it, and he buried it somewhere, um, you know, so it would be safe because they didn't know where they were, were going to wind up and or anything like that. So as he was dying, he was trying to tell his daughter, my friend, where the gold was. Yeah. I mean, this was the foremost thing on his mind. And that's really sad, you know. But who knows what we will hang on to? Yeah, because like I said, we can get attached to anything. Yeah, if your little thing with your name isn't out here, Where's my name tag? Where's my place? Who moved it? Yeah. Where's my bowl? Where's my spoon? My chopsticks? Yeah. Who took them? Yeah, they're mine. Okay. So a lot of grasping onto, onto possessions. Then people. Because so much of our life has been about people. Hasn't it? Yeah. Being friends with people, loving them, caring for them, hating them afterwards, sometimes making up, being strangers, you know, but we don't want to separate, especially from our dear ones. Yeah. And also because the people around us, you know, we have a certain we live in a society and we have a certain position in the society. Yeah. We're, or we're somebody's parent or somebody's child or somebody's friend or somebody's employer or somebody's employee. We have roles, you know, that, and this creates identities for us. So the people around us in relationship to them, we figure out who we are and what our identities are. And at the time we are dying, we're separating from all those people. Okay? So all the people that you were close to, who you could usually call on to help you, they can't help you because when we die, we die alone. Yeah? And even if they could, they're all totally overwhelmed in their own grief. So they're not paying any attention to you. It's like, hey, guys, I'm the dying one. Pay some attention to me. No, they're totally immersed in their own grief. Yeah. And and there we are, you know, dying alone. And they can't come with us. And then we think of all sorts of things that we should have said that we didn't say. Yeah. So there's incredible regret in the mind. People that we we know we should have apologized to, but we never did because we'll do it right before they die. You know, then it'll, it'll be open and a more open situation. I can apologize then. Yeah, but in, until that open situation comes, uh, you know, 
if I apologize, it'll just start up the quarrel again. Yeah. But then you're dying and you can't speak very well. And, you know, so how can you apologize? How can you tell the people that you love that you love them? Yeah. Your mind's confused. It's difficult to speak. And then you're separating from them. And, you know, what's going to happen to them? So you're very worried about them. Yeah. What are my kids going to do without me? Well, actually, they will be fine. I mean, believe it or not, the world will go on without us. Yeah. But we get into, what will happen to my kids if I die? What will happen to my parents if I'm not there to take care of them? You know, what will happen to the Abbey? You know, will they keep the schedule? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or the moment I die, are they going to, you know, throw everything out? Like, you know, you heard the story when after the Buddha died and, um, you know, Mahakashapa was leading them all back to, to uh, you know, Rajgir, and they met some old man who said, thank God that guy is dead. You know, he just made one rule after the other. It was a pain in the neck. And, you know, and Makasapa was like, uh-oh, we better, you know, recite the Vinaya ASAP and make it clear. Otherwise, you know, everybody's going to get in there and, you know, they're going to make, you know, you get up at 8 o'clock and you have breakfast at 8.30 and you have morning meditation at 11.30 and then you have lunch at 11.35. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and your dies, oh, they're just going to totally ruin everything. Yeah. Or you're in the office. Somebody is going to go in my my office. Yeah? And what are they going to do to all those files? Somebody might clean it up. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, or go into her office. And it's like, yeah, where's the desk? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? And they're going to go through all my stuff? Yeah, all my little notes and, you know, my journal. Oh, my God, my journal's there. And I wrote all about the things that, um, uh, yeah, okay. And they're going to find that and read it. Uh-oh. Okay. And we can't even, you know, say executive privilege. They can't have my stuff, you know. Because they're just going to go in there and take it. Yeah. And all of our files, they're going to go through my underwear drawer. Yeah. You want other people going through your underwear drawer and going through all your clothes, all your files. Yeah. This is a good motivation to clean stuff out now. Okay, but you know, you're dying and what can you do? 
They're going to find out all this stuff. Okay, but then you're already missing them. and I mean, just so much emotion around the people that, that, you know, are your dear ones that you've lived your life near and, and count on. And, yeah. And some of them won't even show up when you're dying. Yeah. Somebody will send out a notice. You know, so invincible, so-and-so is dying. Yeah, to your friends, your relatives. Yeah, nobody comes. Yeah, because you're useless. Yeah, if you were giving a teaching, maybe they'd come. Yeah, but you're dying. They don't want to see you die. Yeah. So who wants to go to, you know... Go to Shravasti Abbey and watch somebody die. Forget it. Yeah, I'll go to the movies instead. Yeah, they're playing Kundun. <laughs> I'll watch that. Yeah? And then, so we're separating from our possessions, from our friends and relatives, yeah, and, uh, and from our body. Our body. This thing that we've never been separated from before. This precious thing made of blood and guts that is me, or if it's not me, it's my most precious possession that makes me me. Because if I don't have this, who am I going to be and where am I going to be? Huh? I don't want to separate from this body. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're not going to be a, a happy camper. And, uh, you know, so this is exactly why right now we have to start working on our attachment to these things and imagine giving them all up. And imagine giving them away. And there's uh, some uh, practices where you imagine, you know, well, you, like in Tonglen, you transform your body into what everything, to what others people need, and then you give your body away. Or you do the inner um, mandala offering where you take the different parts of your body and imagine they become the parts of the mandala and you offer that. Okay. So you really, you know, practice giving these things up and giving them away, being okay with it. Yeah. And some people, they, they may get to, okay, I have to give up this body. Okay. But what are they going to do with my body? Yeah. What are they going to do with my body? So, you know, maybe you, we don't know where we're going to die. Okay. We always think we're going to die in some neat, quiet, peaceful place, you know? Uh, But I think Dan Pearl thought that too. And he was one of the guys that they made the, the ISIS made uh, a film of. 
and they decapitated him. Okay. And, and Jihadi John narrated the whole thing, except they didn't take the act, film the actual step of decapitation. They just showed him before and then after with the head detached. Okay. And what's going to happen to my body? Because people can get very funny about their bodies. Are they going to step on it? Are they going to walk all over it? Are they going to make fun of it? Are they going to chop it up in little pieces? Yeah. Are they going to touch it in the places where I don't want anybody to touch me? And a lot of attachment comes for the body, even though we know we're going to separate from it. Yeah. Or maybe I'm going to die alone. I'm going to be one of those old people who die and, you know, they don't find me for a couple of weeks or a few days. One man who I, who, uh, attended the first Dharma course I went to and we did Vajrasattva retreat together. He was in the group retreat. Um, and he was, he was a Dharma practitioner, you know, after that he practiced well and, uh, he lived alone and he had just made amends with his estranged daughter like a few weeks before. And then, you know, his other friends, he had many friends in the community, they didn't see him for a few days. And then somebody went inside and he had died and he was just lying on the floor. John Schwartz, do you know, yeah. So, yeah, there he was, dead on the floor. And he had been dead for a few days before somebody found him. Or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, or you die from one moment to the next. We had another friend who, um, uh, he and his wife were building their dream house. I think, was it on Hawaii, in Hawaii, Ashley? Yeah, so they were building their dream house and, you know, he was, he was up on the roof building it and everything. And, uh, and he slipped and one of the rebar, uh, was upright and it went right through his neck and like that. Yeah. His, his wife heard the noise or heard him scream or whatever and went out there and he died like that in front of her. So, you know, we don't know. And then, so many, many stories. The older you get, the more stories you collect. Yeah. So, uh, you know, all of this attachment comes up. And then especially when it talks about the ego identity, that's, you know, because we... We construct our identity independence on the environment we're in, the possessions we have, the body we have, how society relates to our body, who our friends are and what they think about us. And that whole ego identity, you know, 
which could be, oh, I'm such a lousy person. I always fail. Now my friends need me and I'm dying and they're not going to have me. I'm a failure again. I'm not going to be there to take care of my friends. You know, your usual old, you know, self, self-image rubbish. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's our identity. That gives me a feeling of who I am in this world. And all of a sudden you're separating from all these things that are the conditions that help you create that identity. And so who am I going to be? And what's going to happen to me? And then you start having visions. Yeah? And sometimes you you have memories of of things uh, that happened in your life that you never made peace with. And then you also start having uh, visions of uh, where you could be reborn. So you have to be very careful at that time of uh, what's going on in your mind. Because what's going on in your mind can very easily trigger different karmas to ripen. So they say if you're very cold when you're dying and you crave heat, you know, that that could cause one of the karmas, the negative karmas that could bring rebirth in hell the hot hell, to ripen because you're craving heat because you're cold. Yeah? So, you know, last week we talked about feeling, so, and how we react to that feeling right away. So you have that feeling of cold, it's unpleasant, you want a pleasant feeling, the mind sees something that's warm, it looks pleasant, you go towards it, and wham, you know, there you are. Yeah, in the hot house. So any kind of thing like that could happen. Yeah. Or we're dying and, you know, we, we think, oh, Mudita, what's going to happen to Mudita? Yeah. I don't want to separate from Mudita or Maitri or Opeka. Uh, or Karuna. I don't want to separate. Yeah. They're the ones who always comfort me. Yeah. These human beings are unreliable, but the kitties will always comfort me, except when they don't feel like it. But <laughs> otherwise, they're totally reliable. <laughs> yeah. and, and who am I going to be? What's going to happen? Where will I be reborn? Yeah. Have you ever been on a, a plane and you're going somewhere and you've never been to that country before and you're really not sure what it's going to be like? And, you know, is somebody going to meet you at the airport? Yeah. Do you have any friends there? Will they show up? Yeah. Or maybe you don't know anybody in that country and you're just arriving there and then you're figuring out how to get from the Delhi airport to Tushita at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, in a taxi alone. 
Huh? And will I make it? <laughs> and even if I get to Tushita, will they have left the key out? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, just the, the uh, amount of, of craving for pleasant experience and fear of uh, unpleasant experience can, can really be exponential. So that's why when those particular emotions come up now, yeah, to really, you know, instead of stuffing them away and distracting ourselves, you know, really look at them and, and think about, you know, what the Buddha said to, to pacify the mind. You know, if a lot of self-centeredness comes up, what do you think? If a lot of grasping at eye comes up, what do you do? Yeah. And so to, to start seeing, you know, when those situations come up. So it's, it's not like you're gonna, uh, it, you know, you're gonna f- have that same fear as if you're dying. But, you know, you may be, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, <laughs> when I f- flew into Taipei in 95, I was going to invite Venerable Wu Yin to, to come teach at the um, uh, Life as a Western Buddhist Nun the following year. And I arrived in Taipei, and they were supposed to pick me up, and nobody's there. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and no one is there. And I don't speak Chinese. And I started kind of asking around, trying to find somebody who spoke English to help. You know, I had the phone number, but, you know, I couldn't call. I don't know how to use their phones. And anyway, you know, they don't, nobody speaks English. So what am I going to do? Yeah. So it's a very interesting experience. Yeah. And then, you finally find someone and they say, oh, they're coming. There's just a lot of traffic. Okay, I grew up outside of L.A. I can understand traffic. So you're sitting and wait, and you wait, and another few hours go away, and it's like, the traffic must, you know, (laughs) is it really traffic? L.A. traffic isn't that bad. So it's interesting. So how do you work with your mind? Okay, so all of these things are things when that when they happen to to really use them as practice opportunities. One of my um very good Dharma friends lived in uh lower in he lived outside of the bazaar in, in Dharmsala and he used to go buy his fruit and vegetables there. And his where he lived there was a street that went that went fairly steep down, okay? And uh, there was a fruit vendor kind of on the way where you turn off to go down. And so he was walking past the fruit vendor, uh, you know, with his stuff and thinking about what he was going to do. 
uh, when he got home. And he slipped, yeah, and went kaboom in the middle of the road in, in Dharamsala. And he told me that his first thought was, oh, shit. And then he thought, what am I going to do if I die in an accident? And that's what I'm thinking when I die. Yeah, I mean, he caught it right away because he was had been practicing for years. And, you know, what am I going to do? Because that was the automatic thing that came up. And he, that's not what you want to think when you die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah? Sure, how that relates to craving. But in my mind, um, what I was reflecting upon often is um, when, when you know, you're dying and you haven't practiced well and haven't, um, you know, put your teacher's instruction really well into practice and then it's in your mind, actually, and you can't do um, an exit such as giving your teacher offerings or something like that. It's just clear for you, um, yeah, you haven't done what you could have done. Yeah. And so there's nothing else to do. And so... <laughs> Yeah, how to work with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, do, do something not. now. Yes, do something yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Do something now while you have the chance instead of saying manana in la manana. Yeah, do it now while there's the chance. Yeah, because we do see uh, people who die with regret. Yeah. Or not even, they don't even wait until they die to have regret. But they're older, and in their old age, they have tremendous regret for things they've done in their lives. Or things that they didn't do. They had different opportunities that they didn't take. Yeah, or things that they did do. And uh, and they feel miserable, and they feel bitter and resentful. But still, they don't do anything to, to heal it, you know? I think pride can be incredibly strong and keep us from uh, making peace with things we need to pe make peace with. Because we're just too proud to, you know, approach the person or the situation again. Yeah. So, craving afflicts transmigrating beings by making the next rebirth closer. So, in general, three types of craving arise during the course of our lifetime. Okay, so now, yeah, the explanation is switching. Yeah, the first paragraph was about craving when we die. Now we're going to talk about different kinds of craving that arise while we are alive. Okay, so it's a different situation. Yeah, because, and I say this because, you know, we, we keep thinking, okay, it's in, there's 12 sequences. So everything that is explained under each link should fit in, you know, so all the kinds of craving should fit in after 
feeling and before clinging and before death. And, but now they're going to talk about other stuff. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't fit into my plan. Okay. So the first kind of craving is no surprise. It's for pleasant feelings. Okay. So craving for pleasant feeling arises through the contact of our cognitive faculties with particular sense objects and does not want to separate from pleasurable feelings and the attractive objects and people that stimulate them. So it's very interesting. The feeling is actually the thing that we're attached to, that we don't want to separate it from. But we think that the feeling is inside the object. And so as a result, we don't want to separate from that object or person that is the cause of the feeling. Okay? So it's kind of strange. It's the feeling that we're really attached to. But we think it's the outer thing. What's very interesting is many of the feelings that we have felt when we are with certain external objects, you can just sit down and bring that feeling up all by yourself without the object. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Okay. So I remember one time I was feeling very lonely. And then I just imagined Chenrezig hugging me with all of his thousand arms. And I just called up that very nice, pleasant feeling of being hugged, you know, which you don't get very often when you're ordained, like never. And <laughs> yeah, but... Chenrezig, I could imagine Chenrezig hugging me and then feeling like that. And it, it really kind of blew my mind, like, oh, it's not the object that's, that's really the thing we're attached to. It's the feeling. Okay. So it arises... Uh, through the contact of our cognitive faculties with particular sense objects and does not want to separate from pleasurable feelings and the attractive objects and people that stimulate them. The Buddha compares giving in to craving to a person who drinks an exquisitely delicious drink knowing it contains poison. <laughs> okay. Beautiful images, is yeah? So we know when we crave and when we follow our craving, yeah, we get all tangled up in all sorts of worldly activities. Okay. But it feels good. And then, this, this is the killer thing, what's wrong with being happy? Yeah, does Buddhism say I have to be miserable? Is renunciation about renouncing happiness? 
Yeah, what's wrong with being happy? Why can't I have this? It makes me happy. Yeah, <coughs> the Buddha is so mean. Yeah, and these precepts are strangling me. I just want a little happiness. And, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that. And I can't. What's wrong with doing those things? Everybody in the world doesn't. Yeah, and they're happy. All these people are happy doing all of that. Yeah, why can't I go do it with them and be happy too? Okay, there we have a very strong argument, you know, especially when we're new to the Dharma. What's wrong with being happy? Yeah, what's wrong with having this object or doing this thing? Yeah. I just, just, it brings me a little happiness. I know it's temporary. I'm not going to continue craving to crave it. It'll just satisfy that craving right at that moment. But I'm, you know, it's not like I'm going to get addicted to it, yeah. or like I'm going to, you know, kill somebody to have it. So, what's wrong with it? Then you have this memory, you know, the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns that your teacher has imprinted in your mind again and again, craving for the happiness of only this life, the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns. Okay, a whole Dharma course on that. Yeah. And what's wrong with it anyway? Yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, His Holiness said the purpose of our life is to be happy. So why shouldn't I be happy? Okay. Anybody have that? You have that coming up in your meditation sometimes? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why am I sitting here in pretzel position? (laughs) Reciting these this gobbledygook that I don't even understand. Om Vajrasabhasamaya. Om. Om Tayata. Om. 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 Vacancy. 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 But vacancy and then the Sanskrit, it's not the same. Which one are you supposed to? Why am I saying it anyway? Is it what Tayata Om Vacancy? Vacancy. 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 You know, how many vacancies are there? <laughs> Why am I saying this? You know, I mean, I could be out playing tennis, riding my bike, having a really good time, you know, go swimming, maybe go skiing. Yeah. Yeah. Why am I sitting here? Yeah. With all these other people who, they must be nuts or something because they look like they're having a good time. You know, they're like, so concentrated. <laughs> yeah. 
And here am I. What am I saying? Which mantra am I supposed to say? You know? <coughs> oh, money, penny, hung? Or is it, oh, money, padme, hung? Yeah? Is that a pod or a pay? <laughs> or is it, oh, pay me money, hung? <laughs> yeah? This is crazy. Why am I here? Yeah? You thinking that? Mm. Okay. Anyway, what time is lunch? <laughs> you know, let's get to the important part of the day. You know, this is the third or second retreat center and we haven't even come to lunch yet. I wonder what they're making for lunch. Oh, I know what they're making for rides. Rice? <laughs> Chickpeas, <laughs> lentils, protein. What's that fake hamburger stuff? That potatoes. <laughs> yes, cabbage, <laughs> and of course some tofu, and fake cheese. Why don't they even have regular cheese? You know, why don't there's fake cheese? Who wants fake cheese? Well, some people obviously want it, but they're a little bit nuts. <laughs> okay, so I know what's for, for lunch. Yeah, what's for breakfast? <laughs> There's granola. There's some kind of gooey porridge. Yeah. There's Cheerios. Have you eaten the boxes of Cheerios that the Singaporeans sent? Yeah. You should eat. They sent a whole big box of Cheerios and Raisin Bran. and bread and maybe some peanut butter if you can get to it before everybody else does and then the one kind of jelly the one kind of jam because somebody in this joint won't let us have more than one kind of jam yeah yeah and you know what that person did also she doesn't just control the jam we used to get fruit-flavored yogurt. <laughs> and she decided that she didn't want to offer that to her teacher anymore, even though her teacher liked fruit-flavored yogurt. So she, we never have fruit-flavored yogurt anymore. Not for years. Not for years. Yeah, I don't know what she is going to do next. Yeah. Like your girl. Uh-oh. <laughs> then I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or what is it? 
She'll take all the ends off the bread. Yeah. Yeah, the ends, the heels, you know, the tough part. And she'll throw all the burned toast out. You know who likes those things? (laughs) Okay. So where were we? <laughs> Craving. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But we still crave it. Yeah. We still want it. So we become like laboratory rats who exhaust themselves tapping on a lever, although they rarely get a grain of rice for their effort. And we're like that, you know, let's try and get something. Okay, she's not looking. Go ahead and get the other bottle of jam. (laughs) I'll go ask her a question and keep her talking in the other room there. Okay, go get the other, take out some, some for me too. Okay. Okay. So... You know, we got to get the objects of our craving. That, that's the first kind of craving. Second one, craving for existence. So this one arises while dying because of terror that the continuity of the self will cease. Fearing that we will no longer exist, craving for samsaric aggregate surges. Okay, so we're separating from our body. Our mind is not functioning the way it usually does because we're dying and we're terrified because we think we're going to just cease and become nothing. Okay, so what is it that gives us a life form that ensures that we're going to be somebody? A body. Okay, so we crave for the body, and then we crave for the mental aggregates too. But, you know, especially the body. If you've got a body, okay, the mind's going to come along. Yeah? And so when we crave for samsaric aggregates, like they say, be careful of what you want because you might get it. So you want samsaric aggregates? You get samsaric aggregates. Okay. And then there you are, you know, in another rebirth, in another realm. Yeah. And nobody meets you at the front door, you know, and says, welcome to Shravasti Abbey. Let me help you take your luggage. Because you don't have any luggage, you're not at the Abbey, and nobody welcomes you. Yeah, you just go per, per plunk, and you know, now you got the body you wanted, and now where are you, and what in the world's happening? Yeah. Because there was no introductory course, there was no, oh, what's it called, lone planet guide to the next realm that you're going to be born into. Yeah. 
Oh, the hot hells. Go to the first hot hells. They have some really interesting things that you could see there. Yeah, when you go, go when you're cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and don't bother taking any heating pads or blankets. It'll help you warm up. And so just go there and relax. Yeah. See, there's no introduction. You don't know what's going on. I mean, imagine being a baby. I mean, even you're taking rebirth in a human body. Yeah. You go kerplunk into some little thing that is like, how big is the fertilized egg? You know, it's like this big. Yeah. At the beginning, you know, Maybe some tactile sensation, maybe a little bit of mental functioning. But, you know, where am I? What am I? What's happening? Yeah. There anybody, you know, it's just, yeah. Okay. So craving for existence, existence within samsara. That's the second one. Then the third one is craving for non-existence. So this one desperately seeks separation from painful feelings. When the mind contacts an undesirable object, pain arises. This gives rise to craving for the pain to become non-existent. Do you have that when you have pain? Yeah, your back hurts, your knees hurt, your stomach hurts, your little toe hurts. Yeah, you have a canker sore in your mouth. All sorts of things. Yeah, And it's just like, I don't want this feeling. It needs to go away. What can I do to make it go away? And that becomes our primary objective. So this gives rise to craving for the pain to become non-existent. We want to be released from the painful feeling and the object or person that triggered it. Okay. Now, how many of you in your life have experienced more physical pain than mental pain? How many have experienced more mental pain than physical pain? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And mental pain is horrible. Really horrible, isn't it? Yeah. And there we are in our own self-created hell realm. Yeah, because the stories we tell and the craving that we have and, you know, all the lies that we tell ourselves about who we are that are just garbage create so much mental pain. Okay, how many people... uh, let, let's go by decade here. Between, if we go between 10 and 20 and then 20 and 30 and, and so on up, which parts of your life have been more difficult? 10 to 20, mental pain. 
10 to 20. About, how about 20 to 30? Okay, 30 to 40? 40 to 50? And nobody ages after that. <laughs> yeah? Interesting, isn't it? Looks like it was the 20 to 30. How about if we do 18 to 28? Is that even, <laughs> is that even bigger than 20 to 30? 18 to 28? Yeah. 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 15's not so good, but, you know, you can still, it's not as bad. But, you know, 16, you already are quasi-omniscient. <laughs> yeah. 17, mm, you're, all, you're excited because you're almost 18. Then 18. Okay. Now there's the draft. You're legally an adult. Yeah. And your mind is a mess. Yeah. So. Yeah, was your mind a mess at 18? My mind, I was a total mess. Yeah, unbelievable mess. Yeah, I was no longer omniscient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So an extreme instance of this craving yearns for the self to become totally non-existent at the time to death. At time of death. Yeah, when you have a lot of mental pain, what do people think of doing? Suicide. Suicide. Yeah. I can't stand this mental pain. I'm just going to kill myself and it will end. Okay. So it says here, a mistaken nihilistic notion that could lead to suicide and bring devastating results. One of the inmates that I correspond with, he's a really brilliant guy, and um, he, you know, he was learning Buddhism, you know, at the very beginning. And he was, you know, he was in prison for life for uh, a crime he did at age 16. And, you know, it was not just prison for life, it was juvenile life without parole. Yeah, so it wasn't just even life where you could possibly get paroled. It was life without parole. The, the Supreme Court has subsequently changed that, but all the states haven't come around and given them new sentences or released them yet. Anyway, so he was like so depressed and he thought of suicide. And then he told me, but when he thought that of rebirth, then he knew that suicide wouldn't do any good. So he stopped thinking about killing himself. Smart guy. Yeah, because, you know, you kill yourself, it does not help. It 
it harms. And yet the main, the, the uh, pain, the mental pain is so extreme. I mean, we've had some Buddhist friends that we've done prayers and so on for uh, who have committed suicide. And they, they knew about rebirth. And I, yeah, really quite sad, very difficult. Very difficult. Okay, so those are three kinds of craving that that come in our life. Then, okay, the three kinds of craving are also described in relation to the three feelings. So this we kind of touched on last week. First one, craving not to be separated from pleasurable feelings. That one keeps on coming up in every list, okay? Craving to be separated from painful feelings. That one comes up in one form or another in every list. And the third one, craving for neutral feelings not to diminish. That is, for neutral feelings not to degenerate into painful feelings. In our daily lives, we can witness feeling giving rise to craving. We crave the pleasant feelings and the possessions, people, situations, talents, and opportunities that appear to generate these pleasant feelings. We crave to be separated from cabbage and chickpeas (laughs) and... You know, anything else that disturbs our peace, including ideas and policies we disagree with. Yeah, we cannot stand to hear people say things that we don't agree with, that we think are totally wrong. Yeah. Which, by the way, um, I read an article about the evangelicals because uh, the whole evangelical movement is splitting now, um, you know, because of uh, everything's becoming so partisan. Yeah. And so people who were friends for years, you know, are not speaking to each other, and people are, are leaving the evangelical churches. It's a very, very interesting article. Um, and it gives us a lot to think about in terms of Buddhism, you know, uh, especially because for them, you know, okay, God and Jesus is their faith, but the, you know, they also took refuge in the church as an institution. And then there's all these scandals and things going on in, in the church. And so people are getting quite disillusioned. So it gives you something to think about, you know, in terms of, um, you know, as Buddhists, are we going to create institutions? What kind of institutions? What are the purpose of institutions? Yeah. And are institutions your object of refuge? Nope. But it's very tempting for them to be because your friends are there. Anyway, I'll get back to this, but it's very interesting to think about. 
Okay, so um, we want to be separated from anything that disturbs our peace, including ideas and policies we disagree with. Oh, and um, the uh, Republican National Committee said today that January 6th were, who else read the article? Did you read it? Um, Reasonable Democratic Discourse. That the committee, the January 6th committee is trying, is, you know, trying to interfere, you know, or bust people who are just taking, uh, engaging in very reasonable democratic discourse. Yeah, so you hear this kind of thing, you get angry. Very easy to get angry. And then you start calling them names. What kind of dimwits would say, ah, da, 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 da. It sounds like something that would come out of their mind, ah, mouths, you know. Ah, no. and, you know, and then off you're going. Yeah, swearing, angry. Yeah, I don't want to hear those ideas. Okay. So craving clearly demonstrates the unsatisfactory nature of cyclic existence. We always want something, are fearful of losing what we like, and are, are impatient to be free of what we don't like. That kind of sums up our life, doesn't it? Yeah? I mean, that sums up a samsaric life. And yet... This is what we crave for when we're dying is to do all, do this all over again. Are we nuts? Yes. Yes, this is what it means. This is what ignorance is. Yeah. Once craving arises with respect to any of the three feelings, it swiftly leads to clinging to that feeling and to the object that seems to bring it. This, too, is easy to observe in our lives. We experience pleasure from being praised. Enjoying it, we crave more. Of course, don't we? We could always use some more praise. We can always use more appreciation. We can always use more love. Yeah, nobody ever has enough. We want more. When craving increases, clinging arises. And we wish to hear more ego-pleasing words and to be with the people who say them. Yeah, and then we go through all sorts of things to try and be with the people who say the nice ego-pleasing words. Yeah, because those are the one, those are the people that, you know, really are so kind to me that make me feel good. From another perspective, craving is of six types. Craving for visible objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and phenomena. The latter are objects of mental consciousness and include conceptual appearances of the objects perceived by the five senses, 
thoughts, images, fantasies, ideas, feelings, and emotions. I can entertain myself so well, much better than Vajrasattva and Medicine Buddha entertain me. Yeah, with my fantasies and my dreams and my, you know, stories. So craving is described in terms of its six objects because it arises from feeling, feeling from contact and contact from the sense sources. And each of those links is delineated as six independence on the six objects. Yeah, so our sense faculties, contacts, feelings, clinging, you know, there's six according to the six sense objects. So developing mindfulness and wisdom to identify and counteract the different types of craving is essential. Okay, we should say that again and maybe put it on a mirror. (laughs) So we read it a lot. Developing mindfulness and wisdom to identify and counteract the different types of craving is essential. To do this, contemplate the various things that you encounter and think about. Consider that they are merely fleeting conventions. They have no inherent existence. There is no me, no them. In this way, practice viewing all mental states and objects as transient. Let them go without attaching to them. Beings who are free from craving experience whatever feelings arise in their minds with equanimity rather than with dissatisfied or fearful reactivity. Okay, so, we, you know, there's another fear that if we give up our, our craving, we're just going to be emotionally dead. Yeah. I mean, Shanti Deva said, be like a log rather than respond. So I'm just going to be like a log. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, chocolate, yeah, so what, you know. Oh, sex, that's boring. Yeah, I heard Venerable Nemus BBC on it twice. <laughs> yeah, and she isn't even here now knowing that we're quoting her. Um, you know, money, the only piece of paper. Yeah. I'm free from craving. Okay. Freedom from craving does not mean our lives become boring. Rather, there is now mental space for constructive aspirations to develop wisdom, love, and compassion, and to benefit sentient beings that are not influenced by ignorance. So there's a lot we can do that is not under the control of ignorance. Okay. But, you know, our lives are boring. Yeah, are you at the boring part of the retreat now? Yeah, the the first month is kind of exciting, you know. It's like, yeah, this feels cool, this is good. Second month. How many times do I have to say this in one day? I take refuge. (laughs) Uh, 
And then this, this, you know, this mantra that starts out with tie it home, vacancy, vacancy, oh, money, pay me home, oh, money, pay me home. Sarva tata gata vajrami. It's a big. <laughs> yeah. Because I was so bored. I need some excitement, you know. Let's play mix and match with the mantras. Yeah. Because otherwise I'm just sitting here. You know how many hours I'm sitting on this cushion? Same cushion. Weather. Same weather. Fog. Clouds. Snow. Cold. What happened to spring? What happened to summer? What happened to autumn? And how many more months of this? What date is it now? Oh, God, only February 4th. How long until spring comes? Will I make it until spring? I don't know. Yeah, and I'm with the same people. I know who burps at lunch. <laughs> I know who picks out all the um, all the cauliflower. I know who makes faces whenever there's beans. <laughs> you know, they move the, the who we're sitting with every week, but it's still the same people. <laughs> and they wear the same clothes and the same glasses and the same shoes. And I know everybody's socks. Yeah, and who has holy socks and who doesn't. Yeah, and who wears pants under their shemdops and, and what kind of pants they wear under their shemdops because the, the, the pants are longer than the shemdop and they show. And I know who waits a long time to shave their hair. And I know, yeah, the snack counter, my one place where maybe I could have some happiness. <laughs> yeah, but there's some people who get to the snack counter before I do. And even I get there and I look and there isn't that. And then the person across from me is eating what I was looking for on the snack counter. <laughs> and they are after me in the line, but they, how did they get the stuff from the snack counter before I got to it? You know? Yeah. It's so boring doing retreat. Yeah. Really, I should go have some fun. I think I'll go to sleep. When's this teaching going to be over anyway? <laughs> it's now unpleasant feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's now become unpleasant feeling. I want it to end. Okay, and then at the end of the teaching, what do they say after I am so bored? Rather, there is now mental space for constructive <laughs> aspirations to develop wisdom, 
love, and compassion, and to benefit those old sentient beings who always say, yes, but. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so always craving. Yeah, always craving. So what was, like, wonderful at the beginning, yeah, becomes boring after a while. Kind of like getting married, except you have fights, and that adds some spice to it. It's not so boring if you fight. Yeah, did you ever fight because you were bored? Do you think couples fight sometimes? Just because they're bored? They don't say that consciously to themselves. But underneath it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, then they can make up afterwards. Okay. So we almost did two pages. But you, you see how craving hangs you up? Yeah, you you can't get anywhere when you. I mean, even in the book talking about craving, we only didn't make even two pages. Yeah, you get stuck by craving. Can you say how likely is it that we'll go to a lower realm when we die? Because it sounds like any karmic seed could ripen. You know, we don't know. It's like Russian roulette, or is it? Are there some probabilities we could factor in? Like, if you have the five lay precepts, you're 20% less likely to yeah. go to <laughs> And if you're monastic, you're you 80% can, You less. can tell she worked for the, the government, you know. <laughs> I, th- I think Dr. Fauci is working on that, you know. They're going to come out with some guidance soon and, and the probabilities, but um, it might change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, if you have precepts, yeah, you have a lot more going for you if you keep your precepts well. But, you know, so much, it depends, you know, how we live our life day to day. Yeah, what we pay attention to. So it can't be said definitively, like, even if you're a saint, you know, and you get angry right at the t- time of death. Okay. When, once you get to path of seeing, yeah, then you can say that you won't get reborn in, in samsara. Once you get to the third part of the path of preparation, then you won't go to the lower realms. Okay. But even, you know... Path of preparation, that's the second bodhisattva path. So you have to, even during the, the, uh, first bodhisattva path. Yeah. Of course, it's much less likely, but there's still a chance. Yeah. They say, especially if you give a bodhicitta, yeah, then, yeah, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but it really depends how we, we live our life moment to moment and what we're familiar with. Yeah, what do we familiarize our mind with? Yeah. And to watch, that's why, you know, to watch the stories we make, to watch the craving and what we're craving for, to watch the disgruntledness in our own mind and what we complain about. Because all these things, you know, we have habitual tendencies. And of course, the more habitual, uh, the more we are familiar with something and habituated to it, the easier it is for it to come up again. So um, when we are in the bardo and we are during lifetime uh, habituated to, um, you know, not have um, attachment towards the body. And so... Yeah, I wonder how it goes that, um, let's say we made the promise or made the wish to um, be reborn to benefit sentient beings, maybe, you know, as Bodhisattva's aspiration to be mm -hmm. reborn in a good family. So that means maybe we are attracted to virtue. Um, even so, there's a couple, you know, there's attachment involved likely um, to be reborn mm -hmm. there. So I wonder how that <laughs> You know, um, when you have trained your mind, how that can influence um, where you go. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, it influences in a good a way lot. too. Still, yeah. you know, yeah. right? Yeah, that's the whole thing with with familiarization is that if if we are very familiar with uh, virtuous kinds of thoughts, then at the time, uh, you know, as we're approaching death, it's it's so much easier to direct our mind towards that. And if you direct your mind towards that, that can really help uh, the virtuous, uh, the seeds of virtuous karma to ripen. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, there's no complaint department in samsara. You know, say, wait a minute, I practiced really well. Just because at the last minute I got mad at somebody, I'm going to the lower realms. But I held my precepts for the rest of my life. It's not fair. I want my money back. There's no place to, you know, where where are you going to go? Who are you going to complain to? Mm 